Are you attending the 2021 AAJ convention in Las Vegas? If so, stop by the Trial Lawyer Nation booth in the exhibit hall. You'll get to chat with the crew and pick up some exclusive Trial Lawyer Nation swag you can only get at this event. We hope to see you there July 12th through the 15th. And now, back to the show. This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You've got to have the right case because if you take it up and it's the wrong case, then you can make some really bad law that's going to affect a lot of plaintiffs. There's always an answer. The joy is in finding. One of the reasons that I love being a lawyer is this exact process. The way we live our life has nothing to do with the presentation sequence at trial. As trial lawyers, we pick up and move on and keep going. You're losing or gaining one out of every 10 jurors, which can really make a huge difference in the ultimate result of the case. Whatever you think about, you create. Learn all you can and never stop. And then have the guts to try case after case after case. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have attorney Chad Dudley from Dudley DeBosier in Louisiana. How are you doing today, Chad? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm a big fan, and uh, like I said, all... All the attorneys at our office are uh, avid listeners. Well, thank you. I've learned a lot from you and from the company that you used to part own, uh, Vista Consulting, uh, which has helped me in my, my firm quite a bit. And, you know, I've had the chance to meet you a few times over the years, and I'm really glad to have you on. Uh, just uh, so everyone understands, you know, who you are and what you're here to talk about, let's start by talking a little bit about, you know, what is it you do? Uh, I'm an attorney. I started a firm with my two partners, uh, Dudley DeBosier, and my two partners are James Pelche and Stephen DeBosier. Started the firm back in 2009. Uh, we, we have about a little over 200 employees, about 50 plus attorneys throughout the state of Louisiana. And it's just uh, seen some, some awesome growth there. Uh, I started Vista Consulting with Tim Mackey back in 2009 as well. It was a, a consulting company that only works with plaintiff personal injury law firms to help them with everything under the sun from operations to buy, sell, uh, efficiencies, intake, uh, training, et cetera, et cetera, and grew that. Uh, in, in 2018, my partners, Stephen DeBosier and James, we, we uh, had the opportunity to purchase an advertising agency. And so... Uh, got out of Vista Consulting, got into uh, CJ Advertising, and, and CJ Advertising has about 60 employees, and we represent about uh, 45 plaintiff personal injury brands across the country and do all types of marketing, whether it's print, billboards, TV, online, PPC, um, direct mail, database, mark, do everything, and um, and work, work with those guys. And um, that's been... The, the short version of my story, but, uh, you know, I've gotten to work with over a hundred plus law firms across the country, every issue under the sun. And, uh, I enjoy it. I have fun with it. I bet that really helps you running your own firm too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's a, they both complement each other because, you know, you learn so much working in and on your firm and then you're seeing how other firms face similar challenges in different ways. And when you see something that works, not, just in one firm, but in a bunch of firms, you're onto something. And uh, yeah, both sides of it have, have helped each other. I'm curious about something, and this wasn't on our list of things to talk about, but now that I hear, you know, you started off running Dudley DeBosier and being part owner of Vista. And then when you uh, switched from Vista to CJ Advertising, you know, running an advertising firm while running a law firm, how do you manage your time to do both well? Well, look, first of all, we got great people and, and all these different organizations that I've been involved with. I mean, just really uh, amazing people would not be able to, to do it without them. Mickey Love uh, over at CJ Advertising just does an amazing job. We have a ton of great people at Dudley DeBosier. And so as we've grown, you know, you kind of, you know, let go to grow, you, you kind of let go. And, and when you start off as a, whether it's a small firm, small business or whatever, we all wear a bunch of different hats. I mean, but you, you know, you might do the marketing, you do, you're handling clients, you're uh, going to trial, you're taking depositions, you might be making fresh coffee, you might be changing out the mouse, <laughs> you know, uh, fixing the router, all, you're doing everything. 
And then as you grow, you tend to let go of stuff. You have to, to grow. And that process keeps um, happening over as you get bigger. And so that's what's been happening. And also being very disciplined about how I organize my time, how I organize my days is a necessity. And um, that's how it all works. Do you use any kind of system to manage your time? or? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's just, I'm a, first and foremost, I'm an avid reader. I read maybe maybe one book a week, sometimes two. Um, if one thing that, that started off as kind of fun is um, whenever I read, I take notes, just do a summary of the book. Uh, there's a Dudley the Bookshelf. If you have any interest, I'll, I'll send you the link. It's free. You get a summary on, on books that are related to the running of law firms once a month. But reading how people manage their time and, you, you know, constantly, it's a constant thing. How do you uh, look at the activities that, that you love, that you're good at, that add the most value to what you're doing? What are the things that you wake up and go, ah, this is, this is draining to me? Yeah. Trying to cut those out. And, and you're fortunate because, you know, I was talking to, you know, friends and, and my youngest brother, he was kind of going out in the workforce and saying, when you start your first job, maybe 10% of what you do, you, you, if you're lucky, you're going to enjoy it because you just got to take what you can get. Right? <laughs> and right. As your career goes on, hopefully that number grows. And, and at a certain stage of your career, you can do 90% of things you wake up and are excited about and you add a lot of value and they, they jive with your skill set, your core competencies, the things you... And, and maybe there's always 10% that maybe you wish you didn't have to deal with, but um, those are all things just over time and, and constantly trying to improve. But from email to your calendar to being organized, I, that's a whole nother, I can go down a rabbit hole with all that stuff, but yes, it takes some work. Yeah. And if you'll give us a, a link, we can put in the show notes to your bookshelf. Do you have like two or three books you could recommend? We always have people asking for, you know, what's a good book on this? But you know, we've got a lot of voracious readers in our audience. Um, uh, practice of law or running a firm? What, what's, what's your topic? Um, uh, let's start with running the firm time management. Um, you know, running the firm, there, there's uh, there's a great book, Scaling Up by Vern Harnish. is a, just an awesome book. Another one that's great is Traction by Gino Wickman, I think. Another one that is good um, i just reread what's called the uh, four disciplines of execution talking about metrics and, and that uh, that book saved my law firm but uh, i'll tell you that story later four disciplines of execution tim Mackey told me to read it and i read it yeah. probably about a year after he told me to read it when i was going through some old notes and yeah during a tough time it, it, it absolutely turned around my law firm that good yes it's a great one and i could go there's a bunch of them uh those are some some really good ones and uh highly recommend now you say, you know, let go to grow. I think one of the things that I've struggled with and I hear a lot of other lawyers struggle with is if I don't do it myself, it won't get done right or it won't get done as well. Correct. I, th I think that's a cop out. I think that's a, you know, and I understand it because what, the, you know, the practice of law, especially the, the, the personal injury side practice of law, there is this, there is an art to it. There is a part of it that is very, very difficult to replicate and, completely 100% understand that. I think people tend to overestimate how big that that piece is and that there are things that you can systematize and there are a lot of things that you can make more consistent and understanding where those lines are is incredibly important. And I've been fortunate because my, my two partners are awesome trial attorneys and they allow me to bounce ideas off of them and go, okay, look, can we do it this way. Can we systematize this? And and they'll give that pushback on that. Ah, you know, you get it's too far there or there's like, absolutely, that would make life way easier <laughs> and let's do it. And so um, a lot of the firms, you know, look, there, there, there's a bunch of different ways to build a law firm and you got to find the way that jives with your beliefs, your core values, your vision for what you want your life to look like. I've seen people get, you know, a solo practice, right? And kick butt. I've seen people grow a massive law firm, kick butt and have happy, fulfilling lives and, and do well on both sides. It just, it, it depends on what you want to do. However, if you want to grow it in that sense, it's tough to grow a firm to a certain size by trying to hold on and micromanage and control everything. You just can't. When you say systematize, what do you mean by systematize? 
Well, whenever I say systematize, we, we look at something and we go, is this person driven or is it system driven? Person driven, you can tell if this person didn't show up for work that day, is that thing going to still happen? Meaning you have meetings that aren't systematized. Like, do you have, do you have a weekly meeting that if, if you don't show up and just they cancel it, that, then it's person driven. It's not system driven, right? If you don't show up and it still runs, then it's system driven. Do you have other processes in your office that if a person drops out, it, the whole thing breaks down, right? Someone doesn't show up for work. They're sick. That receptionist, there's no backup plan. It doesn't keep going. Right. And that, so that's, that's part of it. And, you know, when, when you grab a file, you know, if you have three attorneys in the office and you're going to take one of their cases to trial or help them with the trial and you grab the file, does it look the same as the other two or is it yeah. just, a, you know, <laughs> a scavenger hunt. <laughs> yeah, I get that a lot because we get, uh, you know, we're mostly referral-based firms, so we, yes, we have to take all sorts of uh, different filing systems, uh, which range from super duper organized and electronic to, you know, a, a big box of documents. They seem to have shuffled and mixed in some old chip bags, and they find a bag of peanuts and some MMs, and but there's just, who knows what you're gonna find on the file, yeah. and you can't control what they're going to do, but you can control it once it hits your office. Listen, okay, here's here's our system for making it look like how we like it to look for us to work on it. Absolutely, and I think the and I've struggled a lot with letting go um, and and letting go to grow and and not just letting go, but then letting go and then still maintaining quality control once I let go uh, and not just totally abandoning it or, or abdicating. But I find the you know you don't have any freedom unless you can get other people to do things. I agree completely. Even if you run a, a solo practice and, you know, and we talked about when you wake up each morning, are you excited about 90% of the stuff you're going to get to do that day? Uh, the ones that don't let go, that number tends to be smaller because they just, I got to do everything I can. And, and so that's, that's tough. That takes a toll on you over time. If you wake up, you're going to, ah, I got to do this because no one else can do this. I got to do this because no one else. It takes a toll. And so even in a smaller firm, even a solo practice, I would argue you still need to let go of things. I agree. You need to be able to have lunch with a friend and not be taking calls. You need to be able to go on a vacation and not be constantly on your cell phone and checking your email. If you, if you don't have that ability, then kind of what's the point of what we do? C correct. Correct. And, and um, we do some cool stuff. Like we, we, we get to do some really awesome stuff and represent some pretty amazing people. And um, we, we got to take care of, of it, the, the process. And, and it, yeah. So how do we set up systems then? Um, you know, I, I think that um, the, the, the way when I work with firms and I, I still do a little bit of consulting and, and what I do when I work with firms is we assess where's the firm at and, one of the books that I think, um, you know, we mentioned three, there's another one, the first, it's called the first 90 days. Good book. Even it's geared towards someone going into a new position or a new job or a new, and, and talks about their first 90 days and what they should try and accomplish. However, it applies honestly to any 90 days. I mean, even the first, but one of the things is just going, okay, what is the, the status of the, of the firm? Are you a startup are you a turnaround? Are you an accelerated growth? And they call it the STARS analysis because startup, turnaround, accelerated growth, realignment, or sustaining success. And if you're a startup, systems and process, yeah, it, you're, it's just a free-for-all. You're making decisions on the fly. You're just trying to adapt. You're just trying to survive. You're trying to, you got to be really agile and you don't have any systems. You don't really have a culture. All those things are starting to take form. And you really kind of just got to wrap your brain around what's working. You can hire a consultant to come in and tell you, here's what will work. That's, that's a way to accelerate it. But, you know, in, in the beginning, you're just trying to get your arms around intake. You're trying to get your arms around just basically basic file management. How are we going to move these files? How are we going to talk to the clients and, and make sure we're doing that on a consistent basis? And then you add some more complex systems, right? But that's a somewhat of oversimplification, but, Usually, you know, you're kind of starting with the broad framework and then getting more and more detailed and you're just tracking down, okay, consultant can come in and tell you, here's what the best in the business do. 
if you're not going to do that and you look around your firm and go, what's, what's the best at our firm? What are they doing? Or you, you, you talk to people that you, that you know are doing a job and ask them what they're doing. When we started Billy DeBoja and started Vista Consulting, my two partners were the best performers. Like we were all part of our firm before we started our firm. And they were the best performers at the firm. I just hung out with them for a week, two weeks and watched what they did, right? And, and created the system that followed that. Okay, we talked to their clients this often. They touched the file this often. They, you know, when they talked to the client the first time, this is what they cover. When we talked to the client, that, you know, boom, boom. and you're just kind of jotting notes and you're, you're going, what can be repeated? And that's it, you know, and you take it step by step. Now that's, it's a lot. Hiring a consultant, getting someone to make it clear. It's a very methodical process. Yeah, I think hiring the right consultant too, and you talked about doing an assessment of where the firm is, because, you know, one of the struggles, I've worked with a lot of different consultants over the years. Some kind of come in with a prepackage like this is what I try to do with every firm. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I remember when I went to, not 2000, when I went to a certain case management system, they yeah. sent a trainer over. And at the time I had a, you know, 99% litigation uh, referral-based practice. And she wanted to put in all these systems for pre-lit. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, I don't do pre-lit. And she's like, well, you should. And insisted that, you know, I'm like, well, that's not what we do. It's not. Yeah. And, and look, I, there's nothing wrong with doing pre-litigation. It's got a much, actually, it's got a better profit margin, yeah. but it's not what I do. Absolutely. There, there's so many, and you know, get back to absolute part of the assessment. You got to understand, okay, what's going on with this firm and, and going, okay, if there's these different phases of a firm, start up your firm that's less than two years old, turn around. I would say you have less than a 5% net over time. Uh, accelerated growth is you know, a firm that's growing probably over 20% year over year uh, in terms of revenue, profits, and, and signups. And then you got realignment, which is a more stable growth, probably less than 20%, but 10 to 20%. Um, profitability might not be quite where the firm wants, maybe less than, than 25%. Um, and then you got sustaining success where it's a profitable, profitable firm, they're growing. Their biggest challenge is complacency and you know, just yeah. getting bored, right? And so you kind of assess where's the firm at because it, it affects how you work with that firm and how much you can, it, there's different challenges for getting systems in place at each one of those things. Turn around, everyone's going, if we don't get this right, we're going to close the doors. Oh my gosh. Right. And you know what? Side note, COVID was interesting. Totally different reason because you had firms that were in a sustaining success, killing it, doing great. Also, almost got put into a turnaround phase, and it's a weird dynamic when those things happen. But that's another conversation. You got to understand. Right, yeah, <laughs> I can tell you all about that because that's a fascinating thing that happened. But um, because when you're in a sustaining success phase, it's really hard to get people to change anything because they go, "Hey, it's working!" Like Blockbuster. Hey, we got a bunch of video stores; they work great. Why would we ever go, you know, online delivery service like Netflix? Why would we ever change? They don't. Then they get blindsided, right? So there's a different dynamic. The other part that you got to ask yourself is, okay, that's the firm, but then there's divisions of the firm. Or what, what phase are they in? You could be in a sustaining success, but you just opened up a new practice area or a new office. That office or that practice area is in a startup phase. And you got you to be in tune with these things when you're recommending changes because people respond differently based on where the organization is in its life cycle. And you know that's, um, that's important. And then you got to go, well, like you just mentioned, there's a, a couple of different ways people have built successful plaintiff practices, right? You got a, what I call a high volume, low value law firm. That's, that's, those are dying out. I don't, I don't, that model is antiquated in the sense of we're going to do mass marketing. We're going to take in a bunch of cases. We're just running them through and our average fee is pretty low. We're just on to the next one, right? That's, I don't like that practice. I don't think it, helps our clients, um, but they're out there. And, but I, I see them kind of dying off. The next type of law firm is the low volume. We don't take a lot of a bunch of cases, but we have high value, low volume, high value, very selective about cases. A lot of times they're, they're, they get cases from other attorneys, handle big, big files. That's a, a little bit of a different model. Then you got like a hybrid, right? Which is, okay, we, we do get in a lot, a bunch of cases in the door, but we're also going to work them up, litigate, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's a, that model is, is awesome, but presents some challenges. And you got the mass tort firms 
Then you got the referred out firms. We, we get leads, whatever, but we're going to send cases out for heavy lifting. Um, and so you got these basic models. You got to understand, okay, well, the firm that if you're, if you're working with a firm and you're trying to do this stuff, what phase are they in and what is their model? And then the solution has to match that, right? And what it sounds like is whoever you brought on board was like, well, here's the, um, the cookie cutter system. And that's tough because that loses confidence in their advice. And then the, you know, the prescription may be worse than the, <laughs> than the disease. Yeah. Are there just, you know, it's just not, you, you know, you're, you're spending time on things that aren't going to be particularly helpful. You know, it's like, okay, 95% of our income comes from this. We yeah. don't, let's say 95% of our income comes from litigation. Unless we have a bunch of pre-litigation cases coming in, we'd probably be better off refining our litigation systems than spending all of our time on some, on 5% of our business. Unless that 5% has a real potential to take off. You mentioned that you see that the high volume, low value firms are dying off. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I say that, that was the, there, there was a bunch of firms I think that had that model 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And I think that, I, you know, honestly, I, the, the cool thing, I think that there's sort of a movement in the plaintiff's bar to just to, to do better. I mean, like, yeah, I, I'm not knocking it, just going like, hey, look, we're, we're in this because we're, we're lucky to represent the people that call us and we're going to do our best to get them the best result we possibly can. And, and I, I get it. I, that, that's why I love this podcast. You, you got a bunch of people that are on the show that are passionate about representing clients and, and just getting the best result just simply because it's the right thing to do. And I, I see it. I mean, again, working with firms, over a hundred firms over uh, a decade, you just get the sense like that's, there's that movement. And I see firms that just keep, like, I'm going to push the envelope. How, how can I do better for my clients? How can, can I talk to them more? Can I, I'm going to go learn from, you know, these guys and go, you know, what, what is, what are these great attorneys? Listen to this podcast. Okay. That's pretty cool. And I see that's taken over, you know, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I've, I've also, there's a quote from uh, marketing guru, Dan Kennedy. You know, he who can spend the most per to acquire each customer wins. And I think the, one of the reasons I think that model doesn't work as well anymore is there are people that have high volume firms that have good systems that are actually maximizing the value of each of their cases to the extent possible. So instead of bringing in, a, you know, like a hundred cases and selling for 10 grand each, they're selling for 15 or 20. And as a result, they have better margins. They can spend more advertising. They can get more cases. They can, you know, I think it's hard to compete. Even if you didn't care about the clients, which you should, but I think it's hard to compete nowadays unless you're getting full value on every case. You are 100% absolutely correct in that. What you just said is the foundation of how I look at marketing. I mean, for, for personal injury, right? I mean, like if you're doing a great job for the clients, if you're getting better results, you can act, yes, you can afford to spend more to get that case in the door. And, and that movement is really the guys that aren't getting full value for their clients are getting, it's, um, it, it's tough for them to survive. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at cowanlaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. One thing I heard and I actually kind of felt when I first started practicing is, you know, we're, we're on the plaintiff side where we care about people as people. It's not like McDonald's where we're just trying to make every burger the same. And if we just go turn this firm into an assembly line, then we're just, you know, everyone's just a number and we don't care about people anymore. What's your reaction to that kind of attitude? Um, well, look, I mean, I like the, the plaintiff's bar. I mean, we got, you think that the unique personality that it takes to, to go, okay, I'm going to you know, go to law school and we'll do this and now I'm going to go and, and, but also got this, this element of risk taker, entrepreneur, fighter for, you know, fight for the underdog. Like it is it, a bunch of interesting qualities that come together that you find in common when you go hang out with other 
plaintiff attorneys. You know, I mean, I look, I'm talking about that as a general rule. Obviously, there's there's exceptions, but like that's the general rule. So I I like that personality, and what I find is the ones that you know those guys and they, they like people, they care for people, and they do want to get the best result, right, and, and do right by that person. And, and so I guess to answer your you know your question, going okay, well the the crew out there that, that's looking at clients like as a number and on to the next one. I, again, I, I just think that it bums me out. And two, I'm seeing it feels like those are, are starting to die out. I've actually found that the more systems we have in place, the more we can treat our clients like people. Because what I'm not worried about, have we answered our discovery on time? Have we met our deadlines? All that little, the little things that can stress you out if you don't have good systems, the more well, I can think about can I go to my client's house and spend some time with them? Look at the pictures on the wall. Can I, can we set some time aside to be creative on this case and figure out a better theme for the case? Because we don't worry about the little things because the systems are taking care of them. We can do the big things. Whereas before we're constantly reacting. We're constantly trying to avoid a crisis, meet a deadline, something sneaking up on us, a pissed off client calling because they hadn't heard from us in three months and want to know what's happening in the case, you know? Look, that is a such a great point. And, you know, there's another good book. Uh, is it Jocko Wilnick, uh, Discipline Equals Freedom, right? And going, okay, these systems actually, you know, people have this thing in their head. If I have to have systems, and it's going to be constraining. And, um, you know, it's going to take away that feel-good dynamic with the client. It's going to feel very mechanical. And I disagree. I agree with what you just said, saying when you have these things in place, it allows you to focus on the relationship it allows you to be a better attorney for your clients and deliver better better client service better communication better representation and that's how i look at systems i think getting over that hump for a lot of firms is difficult going i don't want to be chained to a system or even worse uh can i have a system for everyone else at my firm but i'm just going to do what i want and <laughs> do, as I, do as I say, but not as I do, which is the kiss of death for culture and for uh, a system at any firm. <laughs> why, why is that? Why is it important that you follow systems too if you're going to ask your, your people to? If, uh, you know, there's a, there's a million different reasons. The, the main is going, you know, as a, as a leader, I mean, if you're running a firm, you're a leader of the firm, you, you are leaders set the tone for the culture, right? And when you follow and practice what you preach, you're saying, look, I, you know, I, I believe, I'm not just making up busy work. I'm not just giving you something to do because somebody somewhere in some book said this was a good idea. I'm doing this because I believe in it and I believe in it so much that I'm going to follow it, right? And when I say something like, I mean, you heard some crazy stuff out there. If you say, well, I don't do it because I've been practicing for 20 years and I don't need to do it that way. I can do it my way. Or um, I... You're, you're, it's such a discouraging thing to, to the culture because then they go, well, I'm just going to, uh, if he doesn't think it's important, then it must not be important. And so I'm going to kind of, I'm, I'm going to wing it too. And, and sometimes, you know, like a good example is, is, you know, deposition prep and there's some great stuff out there for, um, for that. And we can talk about books that I think are, are awesome for the price of law later. But, you know, if, if you say, this is how we're going to prepare for depots. And this is kind of a checklist. And yes, you have 20 to 25 uh, year veteran attorneys that can probably get away with going in and winging it to some, but none of the guys that, that I admire, none of the guys that I um, see get great results do that, right? They don't, they're meticulously, you know, uh, prepared. They take it to, I mean, there, there's a lot of work that goes in behind the scenes and, Sometimes the younger guys don't realize how much work went in to make it look that easy. And, and so if you're going, if you have a firm and, and you're a lazy attorney, don't be surprised when you have lazy attorneys working for you. That's probably a better way to put it. So one thing that I've been struggling with over the last uh, 10 or 15 years is, you know, I, I spent a lot of time to learn how to be an attorney myself and how to take a deposition, how to do a cross-examination. But as I grow, I can't do all the depositions myself. I can't do all the cross-examinations myself. And it's one thing to create systems on, you know, how to meet our deadlines, making sure we call our clients. It seems to be a bit more challenging to, to transfer what I have up here in my head to the other attorneys and get them to, to develop those skills. What are some things you guys 
have well, done that have worked. Absolutely. And here's the, you know, here's the challenge, right? Is that grew up playing, I played college tennis and I grew up playing tennis my, my entire life. And you would think, wow, you're a good tennis player. Teaching tennis should be no problem. It was incredibly challenging because being good at something does not make you good at teaching it. And, and so there's, there's a lot of attorneys that go, well, no, no, I'm, I'm great. I, I got this. Be careful. I'm not saying you can't, but just be careful what you, because what happens is there's things that you do that to you are as natural as breathing. You don't even think about it. And it might be a vital step of how you do your thing. And you don't even think to tell somebody to do it. And, and so sometimes like I did with my partners, you just need a, someone that is good at capturing things like that and documenting it going, okay. Sometimes, like I said, you'll, you'll miss a key step and, and it, it, it holds the whole thing together. And, and so to, to answer your question, like, yeah, that's, that's normal. It's, it's tough to sometimes communicate, document what you do over and over and what you acquired uh, skills that you've acquired over time, get someone, if you can't do it, get someone that may observe you that is good at capturing systems and they might be able to, and they can break it down. And there's things that you can repeat and there's things that are just going to take repetition and experience. You know, I think what, who's it? Uh, John Wooden, who won you know, the, the 10 NCAA championships at UCLA for basketball, you know, talking about coaching and, and what works and he talks about, well, tell them what, what you want them to do and show them what you want them to do. And then, you know, watch them do it and coach them and then go back and break down the table. Like he had a very methodical system for, you know, set the standard, show them how the standard is done, watch them try to replicate it, then give them coaching, repeat. And, and that's, that's it. Right. I think that's where, where I'm breaking down to some, I'm setting the standard. I'm telling them how it's done, but we're not having anybody. And I don't know how we do it. I, I'm, I'm just thinking that you're going to, you got me thinking now I'm going to have to work on reviewing them and, and, and coaching them. I think that's the, the next yes. step to getting good. Um, and, and look, it's challenging. Just, to, just take depositions. Depositions are, are, you know, it's one of the things that is, you know, very, it's high volume, right? In, in terms of firms, like you look at the litigation process and things that affect the value the most. And, you know, depositions are in there. Going, okay, that happens on a lot of cases and it, it could really affect the value of the case in a bunch of different ways. Like Vaudier, right? Not, not many cases make it there. Obviously, incredibly critical, important thing. But of 100 cases, how many, 100 cases in litigation, how many is the defendant or plaintiff or other people deposed versus you made it to Vaudier, right? Right. Um, and so that's a process that if you break it down and you're trying to coach, you know, and, and first of all, like you need a, a framework that, that you can constantly reference. If you're, if you're trying to give people information and they don't have framework to put it, then it, it just, it's, it's all over the place. And so a good example, a little bit off topic, but going like the way our brains work, right. Is if we have places and a reference point to put information, we can, we can access it quicker. The best example, if you took a big bucket of, of clothes and you dumped it out on your bedroom floor and you said, go find me a sock, you'd have to go through the entire pile to find a sock, find me a shirt, go through the entire pile. Now, if you took those clothes and put them in a dresser drawer, top row socks, second row underwear, next one shorts, next one shirt. If I said, go give me a shirt because it's in a, you have a reference point, you can go find it much quicker. Information and when you're teaching is the same way. If you're telling them all this stuff and they have no place to put that laundry, every time they got to go access, they're going through this pile, right? If you give them the framework, hey, this fits here, this goes here, they need that. And a lot of firms where I see they're trying to take a system like deposition, they just never give them the framework and it's just, it's not sticking, right? And so, right. you know, depositions like firms that do good and train their guys on depositions, they do it in sort of an after action review. They all right. Let's let's look at the biggest cases uh, that we had in the last week. Let's look at the deposition. Let's go break it down. Okay, this is defendant deposition. Uh, what were we trying to do? Let's get the hit list. Okay, the hit list here. This is what we're trying to accomplish. How did we do? And going like, okay, boom. We 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 got them to say this language. We got this to do. This ties into our uh, elements of proof. And they kind of break it down and have reference points and coach people. And I've seen that type of thing elevate the group for, for a process like that, like depositions. 
That's awesome. I'm just trying to think of, you know, who does that at the firm? I mean, who, who, who goes and you have to have some of the time and the knowledge. Well, here, well here's the trick of, of, of these, these things, right? With, and you guys, I mean, there's so many great resources out there. And, and what we found is that to get something off the ground, it, it takes a lot of work in the sense of just pick, say, say it's deposition strategy conference and it's the best one in the country. And you're like, Oh, how do we go grab that and, and make it happen at our firm? Um, the first thing we will usually scout it in, in, in the sense, we'll send someone that we trust and go, Hey, how was it? And they're like, this was great. We should use this phase two, right? We want to send someone that is what we call it, you know, the, the practitioner, the person that's actually going to be doing it on the front lines at a high level. And then we, we need also need to send a systems person, an attorney that is good at understanding the system part of it. They both need to go, they come back, right? And make a presentation to the rest of the attorneys going, here's what we heard, here's what we saw, here's our takeaways, here's what we're going to try and do to implement it. And then you need some type of recurring check-in, like a weekly, like, hey, you remember that thing we saw at the conference? How do we do? How do we do? How do we? And, and typically the weekly rotation is sufficient enough. If you do it once a month, it's going to lose momentum. But that's the best way to, and even better, sometimes you'll get someone from the college or the conference to be a coach for some period of time and help you get it off the ground. Apart from that, a lot of that stuff just dies because if you go to a great conference, you're a great speaker and you come back and you, you tell your, your crew, you don't have a system for it. You don't really have a follow-up for it. It kind of fizzles out. You get frustrated going, Hey, I, I told you about that thing that we're going to do and it loses momentum. And so it just, for us, it, it takes that much effort to make sure it reaches from the conference to the actual practice of it. I want to talk about a couple of challenges that I've, I've experienced personally and see what your thoughts are and how to overcome them. Um, so, yeah, that's the, I guess, let me say the first one is I would spend hours and hours over a period of weeks to develop a very detailed comprehensive system on how to do something. I would train on it. I would tell everybody how important it was. And six months later, nobody was paying any attention to it. Right. Uh, right. How do you avoid that problem? Um, and, and look, there's, there's, there's a couple of things, um, you know, whenever you, you launch a system, you know, we, like I have a checklist of things that goes, um, the, the short version of it is, you know, did we explain why we're doing this thing? Like why, what's the purpose of this thing? Then the next part going, okay, are we clear about the expectations? Is it, is there a simple, yes, there should be a very simple, uh, workflow of what we're asking them to do. I get it somewhere else, somewhere separate. There can be the details and the nitty gritty and the coaching because there's but is there a simple way that they can understand how to, to follow it? And then going, have we assigned this or we put someone in charge of making sure this thing gets legs and doesn't break down? Okay, this who's going to own the system and designate that? And then you go, okay, well, how are they going to, how and how often are they going to monitor the application? Okay, we're going to create this report that they're going to look at every day or every week. Or um, again, once you get, if you're trying to get a new system off the ground and you're not, doing like quality control at least once a week, it's going to probably die. And and so, okay, they're going to hold, this is the person that's going to hold people accountable. This is the way they're going to hold people accountable at this frequency. And then below that, here's the consequence of if someone doesn't get on board with the system. That's usually in the early days of getting a system off the ground, the consequence, you get this you know, grace period, but after a certain amount of time, there's got to be some, something's got to happen. It doesn't mean it doesn't have to be terrible. There's a range of stuff from, right. uh, you know, you know, you're not assigned a case that week or to um, termination, right? There's a lot of stuff in between this stuff where you're going to get a verbal one, whatever it is, there's got to be something, right? And so if you've done all those things and three months down the road, this thing breaks down, you, you have somebody to go to that says, hey, you were in charge of this thing. How did it break down? Did you stop the weekly checks? Did you, da, 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 did you And at least you can diagnose it at that point. If you see a recurring thing where you got a person that is letting a lot of systems die and they had all those things, like here's the way you check it, here's the consequence, here's, that may not be your person. Doesn't mean they're a bad person, doesn't mean that you know they're not right for your firm. They just might not be right in a operations type role. How do you monitor whether your systems are working or whether people are following them? 
it's, it's different for each each one. For example, you know, if we have a system where when the client is treating, we're going to talk to them every 15 days and ask them, where are you still having pain? When was your last doctor visit? When's your next doctor visit? That's a system, right? We monitor that by uh, through dashboards and we go, okay, we can, we can click a button at any point and see every single attorney in our office, what percentage of their clients that are still treating have been talked to in the last 15 days. And, and basically the rule at our firm is, is by Friday at five, you, you know, you get your, your stats. That's the expectation. Your stats are lined up. We got a guy that checks it. And, and that's one of many other KPIs, key performance indicators that uh, we'll look at. And if that's off, then there's a consequence, right? It might be not, you know, you, you don't get assigned a new file in the upcoming week. Um, if it's repetitive and it might be something more serious, but so many are report report driven is you got to figure out what the report is that is going to give you the data that you want, right? We want to have a defendant deposition taken within this many months of litigation, right? And obviously there's exceptions to that. There's, but we want to, if there's exceptions, we want those exceptions to be by design, not by neglect and, and going, okay, well, here's all the litigation files that are over six months old that don't have that where the defendant has not been deposed. Okay. Why? Okay. That's a good, that's a good reason. Okay. Let's go to the next one. That's not a good reason. <laughs> you know, you got to spend some time on the front end thinking through that. Yeah. I know that my, one of my struggles I've had, and I've, I've, we've gotten a lot better at it, but I, one of the things I want to do is set up the depositions early of the, you know, let's say it's a, truck crash case, the truck driver and the safety director for the trucking company or a corporate rep for the trucking company on safety topics. Yeah. And so, you know, our system is the day we, and your assistant's supposed to even do it for you, not even supposed to have the lawyer do it. The day with the defendant answers, we send a letter or an email asking for the two depositions. We send a follow-up a week later. We send a follow-up a week later. And the week after that, we notice the depositions. The defense files a motion to quash. We set that for hearing and invariably you end up getting dates. And you know, it doesn't mean you have to do the depositions the next week, but get them on the calendar. You know, they can be three months out, four months out, so you can get your initial discovery. Because invariably, if you don't get them done right then and there, it'll slip. And then you'll have deadlines coming up, and you'll have to then extend the deadlines, increase the time on desk. And, you know, the longer a PI case goes on, the more bad things that can happen to the case. I mean, a client can, in our cases, we've had people die, get arrested, get deported, get in another crash, get pissed off, lose interest, and just kind of stop treating or just, you know, stop calling us. Uh, you know, nothing good happens when cases take too long. Completely but, agree. You know, I get this. Well, the other people say they're not ready to pose our client yet or, but no one else does it that way. And they say, we're being unreasonable. I'm like, I don't care. You know, I don't care what they think. It's what we do. That is such good stuff. Completely agree. Nothing good happens as long as the case goes on in the sense of, you know, and we look at it. And if you look at the practice of plaintiff's law, we're, we're trying to get the other side to do something that they really don't want to do. And we're trying to get them to do it as quickly as we possibly can, right? And, and which is pay our client what they deserve. And really, there's a bunch of things that we have in our tool set to keep pushing them down that road if they don't do what we're asking them to do. If they if we send a demand and they don't pay a fair amount, we file suit. If they don't, then we make them answer the suit. If they don't, we make them answer written discovery. If they don't, we make them, you know, provide their client for a deposition. If they don't, we make them get ready for trial. And if they don't, we take it to trial. Like it's a series of things. If you don't do this, we're going to take it to the next step. And right. the firms that are those intervals have dates. And, and what you're talking about is going, well, from the time we file suit to the time of the defendant depot, what is that interval? We're trying to shrink that down. And so for that, for if we were talking in that as a consultant, I'd be like, all right, cool. Let's let's go measure um, how long is it currently taking you from the time you file suit on average to get that defendant depot or corporate depot, whatever depot we're talking about. And you might say, well, it's hard to pull. Da, da, da. Okay, let's fix it in the database so it's easy to pull. Okay, cool. Now we got the data. Let's look at the data set for X amount of time. Okay, it's taking you on average four months to do that. Are you cool with that number? No, I'd like to get down to three months. Okay, let's get down to three months and let's run a report that says, what percentage of our cases are three months old or more that have not had the defendant depot? Okay, we're at 60%. Let's try and get that up to 90%. Okay, but there's there's certain cases that by design, we don't want to take the depot. Okay, we're going to create something in the database that says you can take this off the list or you get a pass on this one because it's by design. Okay, now we're offering three months and older, 99% of the cases either had the defendant depot taken or we have a really good reason why it's not. All right, let's move on to the next system, right? Yeah. That's another thing that 
used to kill me was I try to do everything at the same time and then nothing would get done. How many things can you really focus on at a time? And then how do you prioritize which one to work on? This is a great one. Okay. So, you know, there's, there's a bunch of stuff out there. The, the best version that we, that we got is, is going, uh, and look, this is reading a lot. How does Google do stuff? How do software developers do stuff? How do, you know, other types of project management systems, how do law firms I've seen what they do? And the short version is, yes, there's only so much you can take on at any given moment. What that amount is differs from firm to firm, size of firm, ability to execute, et cetera. When I'm working with a firm, um, what we do first is go, we do an assessment, we look at the stuff and we go, okay, this is your vision. This is where you want to go. The assessment is this is where you are right now. And when we say, okay, we want to get from point A to point B, let's pick the things that we think are going to have the biggest impact in getting you there, right? And your, your core values are, hey, th these are the rules we're going to play by as we make this journey from point A to point B. Your mission statement is, this is why we're going from point A to point B. And your big rocks are saying, here's what we're going to do to do it, right? We make this list and usually do it in like a spreadsheet and we go, okay, first of all, which one's going to have the biggest impact? Let's put that at the top and into descending importance of what we think is going to make the biggest impact. And then if we're looking at a quarter, we'll assign up, I usually use a point system, right? If you got effectively, you know, maybe there's 13 weeks in a quarter going, Listen, on a scale of one to 13, how many weeks is it going to take to do this thing? Okay, it's going to take the full 13 weeks. That's 13 points. The next one's only going to take half that time, All right, six points. Next. And you're going, as a firm, this quarter, we're going to take on 100 points of stuff. The rule is once you set that list, and these are things that are usually, um, you pick things. These are not your everyday job. This is not stuff that's going to happen, whether you, it's just going to happen because it's, it's, it has to happen. We're talking about things that if you don't make them a priority, they'll, they'll never get done, right? And, and so you, you look at this list and the rule I have is unless there is like a firm ending event or something that is going to you know bring everything to a halt, you cannot add to this list for this length of time. Usually it's a quarter. And everything else, like you're going you're to go to a conference middle of the quarter and have a brilliant, amazing idea that someone, and you're like, you're going to want to come back and, and implement it. And I, as a consultant, I'd say, nope, hold off, put it in the parking lot. When we're looking at stuff for the next quarter, maybe it makes a list, but it, you got to stick to this list because what a lot of owners will do or, or partners will come in, hey, do A, B, and C this quarter. Then they go to conference. Hey, I, I heard about you know E and F. Let's do that. And then they go to another conference. Okay, what about G and H? And then they'll ask about A, and then their team is just all over the place. Like, come on, just give me a break. So you got to be disciplined about that list, right? And at the end of the quarter, you're going to give it, how did we do? 100% execution on, on this one. All right, 13 points. 80% execution on this one. All right. If you're not executing on 100 points for that quarter, the next quarter, take on less. Only give yourself 70 points, like do a 70 point quarter, right? Maybe, and you get 100% execution on that. And then you can kind of may add to it a little bit. And you, you'll, you'll find your firm's rhythm of how much you can execute in that category of stuff in any given quarter. And you find your, your sweet spot. Sometimes firms just have to go, we're going to take on two things this quarter because we're just, we're learning how to execute. We're learning how to do this stuff. And I'd rather do hundred percent execution on two really, really important things and take it on 10 things and 50% execution. That's what I've learned. I've had to yeah. do less well instead of trying to do too many things and not getting anywhere. Yeah. But th does that kind of make sense in terms of priorities and how you kind of yeah. Enjoying the episode. Do you wish you had trial lawyer nation on the go? Well, wish no more. The Trial Lawyer Nation app is available now exclusively on iOS devices. Access our entire podcast library, create a favorites list, search for old and new episodes, and much more. It truly is Trial Lawyer Nation at your fingertips. Download this free app now and enjoy the top legal podcast for plaintiff attorneys wherever you go. You talked earlier about the high volume, low value is dying off. And but I would imagine with 50 attorneys, you've got some volume at your firm. Yeah, absolutely, yes. How do you keep value up? How do you keep people, you know, ensuring they're getting full recovery through your client, they're working up cases properly when yeah. you have more lawyers? It's a great question. There's a lot of things that have to, you know, come into play. And 
And so we try to be a hybrid. We, we know that we're going to get a bunch of cases. And, and you talk about, well, how do, how do firms get big cases, right? There's only so many ways. Big case happens and they, they call your firm out of the blue. No prior connection. No, just rarely happens. It's a <laughs> rarely happens. Another way people get big cases is other attorneys get a big case. They know you're good at big cases and they bring the case to you. That's a very effective way to do it. Other ways to get big cases are you get a bunch of cases, you have a high volume of cases, and you find the big cases that are in that. As firms get bigger, it it gets more complex because how many attorneys do you have at your firm? Eight. Yeah. So say you have the exact same case, same fact pattern, same injuries, et cetera, goes to all eight of your attorneys. The value that each of those attorneys would put on that case or possibly get on that case is going to be different. That doesn't mean it's not a knock on your attorneys. It happens at every firm, right? One, one attorney might get a million dollars in the case. Another attorney might get, and whatever that spread is between your best attorney and your youngest or least experienced attorney, that's a, that's a big deal. Cause if you, if you say it's one case and I'm, I'm not exaggerating, I've seen firms where if you give that exam, that, that exact fact pattern to one attorney, he might get a million attorney over here might get two fifty. And the spread is that big in their firm. You got to narrow that down, right? That that those cases either get identified and get to the best attorneys is the key, right? And so, at our firm, um, identifying the big cases is it's, again sounds simple. You have to get fanatical about it. Uh, five most firms on the on auto and general PI, twenty percent of their cases generate eighty percent of the revenue, and five percent of their cases generate about fifty percent of the revenue. They're 20% of their worst cases, but where they still take a fee, generate one to 2% of their revenue. And so you got to be very mindful. What am I dealing with? Am I dealing with a top 5% case, a top 20% case, a bottom 20%? Like, And so you got to have a ranking system that is very good at identifying those things. And that's a whole nother, you know, the, the, the best firms that I see, the way they look at cases is going, this is a great case. Tell me why it's not versus the, the firms that aren't that great go, this is not a great case. Tell me why it is, right? right? They start from zero and they add as the case goes along. A lot of the attorneys that, that I see that get great results that I have a ton of respect for say, I think this is a fantastic policy limits case. Tell me why it's not. Convince me. And, and, and you got to look at your cases like that. And, and so that's another part of it. We have an attorney tier system at our firm. So every attorney is a, uh, it's from one through five. One is, you know, you're fresh out of law school or you've never practiced personal injury before. You're brand new. Five is that you've had, uh, you know, three verdicts or more of seven figures and that you can basically try any case in any place, anytime, anywhere. And there's a way to graduate from one to two to that very objective. But the point of that is it's not fair to the client to have a tier one attorney on a very complex, severe injury case. And if you can have that conversation very plainly with the attorneys in your firm, they should agree as well. Okay. And so once everyone understands their role, okay, I'm a tier one attorney and this huge case just landed in my lap. I'm in over my head. I got to get it to a tier five attorney in our office. Then things can happen. Better things can happen where um, we're, we're collaborating on that mission to get the cases that need a top attorney on it, on that case versus other firms sometimes you got you know, a tier one attorney has a big case. He's sort of disincentivized through the compensation plan or through the ego or whatever to hide or hold on to that case and he, and get a lesser result. And he's, it's dysfunctional. It's bad for the client, bad for the firm. And so you're talking about how do you get, how do you find these big cases? The other thing that, that we do is um, we have what we call a, a valuation committee. The scenario I talked about where if you have one attorney in your firm that could get a million dollars in a case and on the same exact case, another attorney might only get 250. The goal of the valuation committee is can the attorney with the highest risk tolerance, the one that's going to push the highest limits on the case, can he bring that case up to a million dollars for every case of that, uh, that fact pattern in the, in the firm? The way we do that is if a case is over a certain size, you have to go in front of a valuation committee. In the valuation committee, uh, we have the attorneys that have the highest risk tolerance at our firm setting values on cases. Um, and then that that pushes people out of their comfort zone 
And, and in some cases, they might say, you know what, I don't know if I can get there. Hey, hey, tier five attorney, can you just can you take it and let's let's go get that for the client? Show me how. And that process will um, firms that I've worked with that have applied that process have seen crazy things happen to the results. Like it really, you know, Tim Mackey told me years ago repeatedly to do it, and I had somebody like, oh, we're too busy, we don't have time to meet, and you know, COVID actually is what finally got us to do it. We talked about doing it forever, but with COVID, we had to implement a lot more meetings because people were working from home and uh, it's been incredible. Not only pushing a case for more value, but the other two things I've seen is a lot of times one of the newer attorneys will bring in a case and the answer is this case is not ready to be valued. You need to do one, two, three, and four and come back in a few months because this client needs more treatment. There need to be more depots taken, whatever it is. Uh, and that the realization that, Hey, we do more here than just, Kind of gather the medical records and, and try to settle it has been really good and then the other thing is sometimes the lawyers that weren't as experienced they hear all the numbers everyone else is getting and then they overvalue a case that is a bottom five percent case you know you know yeah yeah you know when we're working with firms to get that off the ground you know someone brings it in and there's like you know there's three responses one hey this is this is not valuable enough to talk about at this meeting okay not, not that we're going to neglect the case, but just go, let's go set a value offline. We got a bunch of guys in here that are trying to set values. Um, let, let's get to a bigger case. The other response, which you just said, is this case is not ready to have a value set on it. Go do A, B, and C and come back. Go get book rehab, economic expert, da, 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 take this depot, whatever. Do that, come back, and then maybe we'll set a value. Or, okay, we can set a value on it. And then, and then it, it is interesting what you just described to see people start pushing each other and it gets to yeah. like, all right, they're, you know, it's funny, you know, attorneys, when they see someone else in the firm get a great result in, in that environment, if, if you're doing it right, they get encouraged. Like, well, why can't I get that result? Especially like with a, a jury verdict, you know? Yeah. Um, and they go, why not me? Why not? And then they get emboldened to be, you know, to do better. You've also talked to, when we were talking before, you talked about something called the Pareto. Yeah. What Pareto. is that? Uh, Villafruto Pareto was a uh, Italian mathematician. Uh, he came up with the concept that 20% of your effort usually creates 80% of your results. We've heard that 80-20 rule, and that's where it comes from. And so each each business kind of has its own space. And what we found in the personal injury space is usually about, you know, for auto and PI, about 20% of the cases generate 80% of the revenue. And doing more work with personal injury firms, I've seen that maybe we all call the, the super Pareto is 5% of your cases tend to generate, you know, 50% of your revenue. Um, and then firms should find out, okay, well, where is that true? If we do auto PI, med mal, nursing home, do the analysis for each of those case types and just see where, where do you fall? Right. And you might find, okay, well, well at your firm, you, you might say a Pareto case looks like a case where we get more than a hundred thousand dollars. It's recovered gross settlement of a hundred thousand or more. But if that's the profile of a case that's going to generate 80% of our revenue, it's about 20% of our cases. And then you might say our super Pareto is at 500,000 cases that, you know, 500,000 gross settlement or higher. It tends to be about 5% of our cases. It generates about 50% of our revenue. You can do the analysis and kind of see what it is. And then you're looking for those profiles at your firm and, and your ranking system matches up. Okay. This is a Pareto case. This is a super Pareto case. Now, the other one is the, the pain point. The pain point is your bottom 20% of your cases where you still take a fee. It, again, that only generates one to 2% of your revenue. And um, just being aware going, don't get bogged down, get the best result you possibly can for the client, push it, but, but also don't get bogged down. Um, and, and so think about that. If you, if you have a hundred cases, right? Five of those cases are going to generate 50% of your revenue. The top 20, 20 cases can generate 80% of your revenue. Most firms, there's going to be 20 of those cases you just get out of, no fee. There's going to be another 20 cases that generate 1% to 2% of your revenue. So about of 100 cases, 40 of those cases, 1% to 2% of your revenue. And you got you to find those and not spend a bunch of time, effort, and energy. I realized probably about 8, 10 years ago that I was spending a disordinate amount of my time on cases that had gone south, uh, trying to get some, get the expenses back or get something out of them as opposed to focusing on the 5% that really made us money. 
I think they call it the sunk cost fallacy. The more money and time you put into something, the more you want to keep putting into it to get back, get something on what you've already done. And uh, I'm learning to avoid that and, and focus on what works and sometimes letting go. I mean, like, you know, hey, the client lied to us. You know, this case is no good. I mean, don't keep killing yourself on it. You know, just the time on desk for the, the, the pain point cases and the no fee cases that directly correlates to a, a law firm's labor ratio. And what I mean by that is every, you know, every firm has a labor ratio. Take the total amount you pay in labor divided by your revenue. And that's your labor ratio. The firms where that's higher, the, their time on desk for how much time they spend on pain point cases and, and no fee cases is typically long. And, and the short version is saying they spend a lot of time working on cases that only generate one to 2% of revenue or zero revenue. They might work on it for six months before they realize it's a bad case or nine months or 12 months and that eats up labor. And so you have people at your office that are going, we're working so hard. We're, and they are, they're working, but they're just working on bad cases and the the labor ratio goes through the roof. Yeah. I've, I've had that before in lawyer, like, well, I'm working all these hours. I should be paid more money. It's like, but well, you're not making any. I mean, it's just like, right. I appreciate. And, and, you know, in that same docket, when that lawyer decided to go somewhere else, those cases generated a bunch of money because someone focused on the good ones instead of getting caught up in the weeds on the, on the smaller, lower value cases. And just, you know, not that the work's not important, but putting an inordinate amount of work on those and then neglecting the bigger ones. Well, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's tough to do, but if you think about it, right. Say I'm just going to use a hundred and, and there's a whole people go, how many cases should an attorney handle? I'm going to use the number hundred. And I'm not saying that that's the number, but say an attorney has a hundred cases and has during his Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, he's working on those cases. In theory, he should be working four days on 20 of those cases and then one day on the other 80. Now, that's uh, that's a gross exaggeration. Very incredibly tough to do, but it's to illustrate the point. If he has 50 cases, apply the same math, same concept. But we don't. It's hard to do that because you sometimes give equal attention to all because you're just trying to put out fires. But the good firms are purposeful about how much time they spend on those really big cases. Yeah. In fact, I, I try to personally only spend time on those top five cases. And, and, and that's how it should work, right? I mean, the system should bring uh, at a firm like yours going, okay, we're good at identifying those cases. The process is to migrate them up to the most qualified attorneys in the office and in an appropriate amount of time. So good stuff can be done. on. So you're also, I mean, you market your own law firm, you help other lawyers market their law firms. What is working right now? as far as marketing channels? There's a variety of things that are still working. Um, and, and again, when, when a firm comes to me and goes, okay, I want to generate more business, the, the two things that, that I mentioned at the beginning, okay, what, what phase is the firm in? Are they in a startup? Are they in a turnaround? Uh, I'll do an assessment of, okay, what is their current health, right? Okay, they're, they got money or they, they're trying their paycheck to paycheck. What was the situation there? And then... I'll go, what kind of model are they are they trying to build? Are they trying to do a high volume, low value, low value, high volume? Are they trying to do a hybrid? Are they trying to do a mass tort practice? Are they trying to do a attorney referral, like a referred in practice, you know, referred out practice? What are they trying to do? And there's different strategies for for each of those because you know, like if you're um, you know, rely on attorney referrals, it's more of a business to business type strategy as opposed to some of the other guys that are doing mass, you know, mass advertising where and that there's markets where TV is, um, you know, going full blast. There's, there's other markets where it's changed a lot. There's other markets where, you know, more people spend time on PPC. You know, it's just we, we, when we look at a client and they come to us, we do a mix of different stuff from, you know, you got lead generation companies out there. You got PPC companies. Uh, you got uh, TV. TV, I, I still believe, is the best way to build a brand. Uh, it's getting more and more challenging, but that's it's a great way to build a brand. Billboards are great. Radio is great. Um, you know, direct mail works in a lot of different markets, depending on jurisdictional rules, database marketing to your current and former clients is, is strong. And so all these, we put together a formula that meets the, the objectives, the market and the life cycle of the firm that we're, we're working with. But another short version of the way to look at it is my good friend, Tim Mackey says, all that stuff gets people to the restaurant. If the food is bad at the restaurant, it ain't going to work. So 
you got to take care of those clients. You got to do a good job for them. You got to, you know, um, do great things. Uh, and that helps that complements so much that that does everything. And that's, that's, the, that's the end goal. Yeah. And if you have a referral based firm, you have to take care of the referring lawyers as well as the yes, that's a, <laughs> clients, you know, measure us on, you know, they don't know if you did a great job at trial. They don't know if you wrote a really brilliant brief. They don't know if you, you know, really did an awesome deposition. They know, did, did they talk to me a lot? Were they nice to me? Did they treat me right? That's what they judge us on, right? Referral attorneys are different. They know if you did a good job at trial and all this kind of stuff. But in addition to that, they want communication. Uh, people that are trying to build a referral practice, I'm like, look, you know, uh, keep them updated. Make sure that you get the check to them before they ask for the check. <laughs> Make sure that, uh, you know, you thank them. Make sure that you, you know, just treat them right. Treat them how you want to be treated. And that that process. Don't try to change the deal when the money comes in. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. I, yes. And then, you know, we're kind of running out of time a little bit, but you had mentioned some great books on the running of a law firm. What are some books on the practice of law that you found? Gosh, the, the, okay. The, you know, the, there's some good stuff. Um, Rules of the Road is, is awesome. Um, you know, Reptile, Don Keen stuff is great. But, you know, Reptile, when we have attorneys come in, we put in those two advanced depositions. Um, Philip Miller, great, great book. Uh, Roger Dodds, The Art of Cross-Examination is a, it, it is a, Awesome, awesome book. Uh, Run with the Bulls, but uh, that great one. Nick, yeah, Nick, Nick good, good stuff. Don't eat the bruises. Keith's book, great stuff. Um, those are all that, that come top of mind right now. Now I'm sure I'm leaving some out, but those are the ones that, that jump out as just if this is uh, your your profession, that should be required reading. So Chad, thank you so much for joining us today. I could talk to you all day, but you know this kind of the format lends itself to about a forty-five minute to an hour uh, episode. Uh, if someone wants to learn more or get a hold of you in the real world, how do they find you? C Dudley at DudleyDebosier.com. Okay, thank you so much, Chad, and I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff-lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to Delisi at CowanLaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at CowanLaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan. It is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.